and welcome to Postcards to the Future, the podcast which listens in to the artists, producers, publishers and directors who are shaping the future of arts and culture. I'm Claire Doherty and today I'm talking to Charmaine Lovegrove, who is head of Dialogue Books and imprint of Little Brown and Hachette. Most recently, they published Britt Bennett's fantastic The Vanishing Half and Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendez. Now, Charmaine was declared the bookseller's industry person of the year in 2018, and hers is really an extraordinary story. Leaving home at 16, she went from selling books under the arches of Waterloo Bridge to running the first English-language bookshop in Berlin. She co-founded a scouting company to adapt books for television and became literary editor of Elle magazine. Now, as the head of Dialogue Books and as one of the co-founders of the Black Writers Guild, Charmaine seeks out the stories that have been previously excluded by publishing houses. The description radical is somewhat overused in our industry, but in Charmaine's case, it is truly fitting. Her commitment to change from within the establishment is awe-inspiring. So, Charmaine, hi, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for making time for this. I know that any time like this, talking on this kind of platform, takes you away from your authors. So it's so appreciated. Um, And I want to kick off by asking you, so where are you right now? What's the task at hand for you in this moment as we talk in summer of 2020? So um, what the task at hand, which I was hoping not to think too much about um, right now, because otherwise it will start giving me anxiety about how much I've got to do. But we're moving to Berlin in a few weeks in um, just under 10 days. Um, And so what I'm focused on is um, my publishing and ensuring that when I take a month off that my publishing is sorted. Um, But I'm also really involved in kind of the structural changes around um, inequality and oppression, specifically towards Black people within the publishing industry. So um, we formed the Black Writers Guild um, and wrote a letter Mm. to lots of different publishers saying outlining what we really want, outlining what we really wanted to, um, what we need to happen in order for there to be inclusive um, change throughout the industry for writers and publishing professionals. Um, And that's just a mammoth task in terms of change um, and in terms of structure and really thinking about how we create a space of um, equality and especially especially in a post-Brexit Britain, where the people who are really responsible for a lot of these structures um, don't consider themselves prejudice. And so Mm. it's this sort of constant balancing act of how to talk to different types of people whilst at the same time exerting pressure, whilst at the same time not making them feel alienated. So, yeah, it's a lot. And this dual role that you have right now has been coming and developing for years for you, hasn't it? Um, Now you find yourself in this context where it feels like it's almost as if someone's pressed the fast forward button, the acceleration for all sorts of reasons of change. must feel for you that this has been coming 
for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's been lots and lots of people over many years who have tried to um, force the position um, on change and sort of move the dial. And absolutely they have um, in many different ways, as many different organisations, as many different individuals, sort of too many to name. But that I definitely um, am not at the starting point. But it does feel kind of slightly different at the moment. And I think the thing that feels really different is um, the acknowledgement from um, white middle class people that maybe they have something to do with it. And also the acknowledgement from us um, as people who have been marginalised and oppressed that we have come so far and that we do have a voice um, and that it's our, that we have to use it. And that it's really, really important that we use it um, for change. Um, I'm the first black person to be um, actually to have an imprint in corporate publishing, to actually run an imprint, to run a P&L. So it's just about acknowledging how far we've come, but also how far we have to go. And I think that 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 process of change kind of starts with yourself and whether or not you feel kind of capable of making those changes um, and also bringing people along with you. And so it's really less about how I feel, um, actually being at Hachette, um, running my imprint, um, running the task force that we have now around inclusivity, having run Changing the Story, which is our diversity and inclusivity initiative within the business, then um, it's I've got a lot of support and confidence from the CEO and many people within, the, within Hachette. And that kind of gives me a confidence to kind of take it further. Mm-hmm. And I think if I was feeling really uncomfortable, then um, it would be much harder for me to kind of make these demands because I'd be really worried about myself and my job and you know my future. But because those are things I'm not really worried about, I'm not really concerned about the juggling of it, it kind of actually gives me a lot more space to do the work that needs to be done. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense of being in a good place in your own mental state and well-being to push ahead and to recognise what others might be going through. I want to come back a bit to how you first got involved in publishing and maybe not all the way back to tell the story that's been told in many other places in brilliant ways but to think about when you first started dialogue and what were the stories that you weren't reading what were the reasons behind thinking actually there is a a space here and there is a gap that I'm identifying how did that begin so I mean, in a way, I have to sort of tell the whole story because, you know, when you say, when did you first start Dialogue? Then actually Dialogue started as a bookshop in Berlin, you know, um, in 2009. And so um, I really wanted to have a bookshop in Hackney. They said Hackney was never going to be an up and coming area or never going to be gentrified or whatever. I don't think we're using the words then in the late um, 90s. And I really wanted to have a bookshop and it was always my dream. And Berlin was really just an amazing city and didn't have a new English language bookshop. So I started the bookshop and, you know, because I've always been a really inclusive reader, then for me, it was really clear that there was a gap of new writing that was coming from people from different backgrounds. And then I moved back to London in um, 
in 2014-15 and I became a scout where I found books that could could be adapted into film and television and started the first company to do that um, in Europe. Um, And, you know, through all of that reading, you know, reading hundreds of manuscripts a year um, and advising film and television companies what they should adapt for screen, then I also noticed a dearth of writing from people from marginalised backgrounds and, you know, stories that I, outside of stories um, that, I could really resonate with um, as well. And that became really interesting to me. But it never occurred to me that I would become a publisher um, because I hadn't taken that route of starting in-house from the age of 23 and then sort of working my way up. Um, But in a chance conversation with Charlie King, who's the MD of um, Little Brown, then we started talking about the issues of diversity and race in the publishing industry. And um, I was given the copy of the bookseller in that moment um, by Philip Jones. We were having a drink in my private members club in Mayfair. And um, the four of us, um, Julia Kingsford was there as well, who runs the Good Literary Agency with Nikesh Shukler. And yeah, the four of us were talking about the issues of diversity and the lack of diversity within publishing and the stat that really hit me was that out of 165,000 books that were published in a year less than 100 were published by people of colour and only one black male debut was published and I just was like guys (laughs) like what's going on um you know I know this as a scout I know this I was also the literary editor of Elle magazine Um, but so I knew it in my reading, but I also was shocking to see the stats. So we discussed it. And then I was like, you know, you have Virago, which is a feminist imprint at Little Brown. And really you should have a, an imprint that's focused on diversity and inclusion. Um, and so we just got talking about it. And by the end of these drinks, (laughs) quite late at night, (laughs) it was like, you know, it really was sort of on the back of a beer mat, and then after a while, conversations over the next few weeks and months, conversations started happening um, between Charlie King and I. But I never really thought I would run the imprint. I always thought that I would okay. just find someone because I was quite happy in what I was doing. Did In those conversations, was there a conversations about the difference between an imprint that might um, act as a as a set of barriers, you know, or limits around a set of writers, as opposed to ensuring that um, there was more diversity across the different imprints that Hachette and Little Brown have. Was there a doubt in your mind? There was never a doubt in my mind. Um, I think there was a question from, I also spoke to other publishers about it. I spoke to Penguin Random House and HarperCollins. And, you know, there's an irony that their whole thing was like, perhaps if you do this, then it will be ghettoizing, mm. marginalised, right? Like, you know, people of colour, BME people. And I was like, well, you do that anyway. You know, yes. let, like, let's be really clear. You're doing that anyway by your your lack of um, editors from, from a range of different backgrounds, from the lack of, um, means that there's a lack of, authors as well um and that are representative of the country and so you know sure you can say you can say you know that ghettoizes a marginalized group um but but i don't see 10 years of diversity platforms doing anything more 
than everyone just constantly being put into schemes mm. and schemes mm. and schemes. And then you're like, well, yeah. what's, what's coming through? Um, and, and so it was just, it, that was just something that I had to push back on because also they're not yeah. talking about it with knowledge. I mean, who are they to say what we feel as people who are marginalised and oppressed by this society yes. when they are sure. white, middle to upper class people? Like, they, it's like you, you, it's just not something that you can speak to. So it just quickly diminishes, especially when you start looking at the stats and like, well, what's the alternative? And, mm. And what's been the journey of dialogue ever since that moment? So that moment when those things started to come together and it it became clear that you were going to head up this imprint. What was, what's been that journey of publishing from then to now? Well, it was a really, um, I mean, it was a baptism of fire, really. Um, you know, I had never worked in a publishing house before. I've never really worked in a corporate environment before. Um and quite quickly, I began to understand why people um, from marginalised backgrounds find it really difficult, actually. Um, there's a think-speak, there's a way of being. Um, it's very homogenous, um, not just homogenous in terms of um, the protected characteristics, like being white, middle-class, female, um, you know, it's 87% female, 99.2% white. Um, and class is obviously more, much harder to, to measure. And I think actually as a black middle-class person, it was really interesting because I, I can read the cues really well. I'm from London. And I was like, there's not even that many people who, who are from London that work here. Like, London's really been marginalised as a region within the publishing industry, although all publishing houses are in central London. So I found it really difficult and quite quickly moved to Bristol um, after six months. And I hadn't yet published my first book, but I had started to acquire books. Um, and at the beginning, it was really tough because people were really negative and would say things to me um, about how hard I was going to find it, how how. You know, just people in the publishing world. People from the publishing world, I'd see them and they'd just be like, it's just so, I mean, we're just such terrible people. I mean, it was just so funny, like the way that people <laughs> would, like, we're going to absolutely hate it. And I'm like, great. And then I found out for someone recently that apparently people within six months are already saying, hasn't really worked, has it? That sort of diversity imprint. And you're just like, wow, you guys are so comfortable. Um, and publishing's supposed to be a risk industry. You know, we, we pay in advance to authors up front um, with the hope that they will make that the very least what we um, the very least what we've um, given them in terms of their advance, but also more um, in order for us to make a profit mm -hmm. and to continue. And that's sort of the business model. And so it's really interesting um, how risk averse and cosy it is. And I think that's the thing that I found the most difficult. So sort of moving further and further away from the office environment, but the further away that I move from the physical office environment, the more kind of creative and dynamic that dialogue has become. Um, and just basically yeah. not being weighed down by inane conversations um, of where, you know, that I just, office conversations that I just don't find particularly interesting or challenging. Um, but what I'm really challenged by is the world and by people and by the stories that they have to tell. And also, yeah. you know, I see it as my job as ensuring that they have the right um, to tell those stories. 
if they're really good. So the thing that's been really interesting about Dialogue is that we've been long-listed and short-listed for many prizes, um, from the Women's Prize to the Gordon Byrne Prize, we've been um, short-listed, um, Desmond Elliott Prize, we've been, we were short-listed, Polari Prize, we've won, you know, so there's a lot of prestigious um, prizes that are books um, that wouldn't have been published by other people that I didn't get into auctions with, um, the books that nobody else wanted or wasn't interested in publishing you know we've 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 published them with um flourish and um agency and just kind of got on with it and it's just it's just amazing and you can see that in even in the last eight weeks um i've been watching during lockdown dialogue successes and i think one of the the curious things that i wanted to ask you really is where do you head now? So personally, as you mentioned at the beginning, you're moving to Berlin, you're going to be working remotely from there and in London. And I'm wondering, you know, that the journey has only just begun, really, in terms of the work you you hinted at with um, the Black Writers Guild. So when you kind of look ahead, what's the kind of uh, the thing that you're really making the priority in the next year? in view of who knows what's going to happen to the economy and the conditions that are changing. How do you, as an individual, kind of shut out some of the noise and concentrate on the thing that you feel is going to make the difference? Yeah, so part of moving to Berlin is that, is that I just feel really comfortable kind of doing my own thing in my own space um, and sort of being quite far um, and also having a good kind of lifestyle. You know, it's I studied anthropology and one of the things that you learn quite quickly is that in order to for society to have sort of progressed into a society that can have arts um, and people who are thinking um, and engaging in culture, um, that creation of all of that came from people who were doing the really hard work. And I think during lockdown what we really saw is that you have all the key workers who are going out and doing all of this amazing work to keep our society afloat and keep us healthy and keep us with food and everything that we needed um and then I it meant that we could get on with our jobs from home um and what the thing that people were turning to was books and so during a recession books tend to literature tends to get kind of quite a high um density increase in sales so it means that um people are prepared to read because then because other forms of culture are really really expensive so it's almost like that whole thing as I said that sort of from an anthropological perspective like the surplus um and so for me having that surplus allows me to be the most creative um I can be and to hone in on on the reasons that I bought every one of those books that I've got coming over the next year um, and ensure that they reach their readers in, in, in ways that I don't even know yet because we haven't even come up with them yet. But each book deserves yeah. that, um, that space and attention from me. And so I feel, I feel like my move actually is a signal, it's more of a signal of me stepping into my role as a publisher and taking great responsibility for my authors for dialogue books um, and um, and knowing what I need in order to do that. So I'm really excited. Like I'm like really super um, 
I'm really, really excited. Um, but it means that being away also means that I have like the respite that I'm needing, that R&R time um, to mm-hmm. kind of recover from the onslaught of, of fighting for systemic change as well. So on one hand, mm-hmm. it's like very creative. And on the other hand, it's, um, it's very, um, it's, I mean, there's like engine work room um engine room work of just like you know moving like to move the dial and it, phys- it physically takes so much out of you you know we're in bristol right now and it's like you think of brunel and you think of all of that iron and steel you know and you think yeah. of the bridge and everything yeah. that they made and it's like it just takes a lot of physical power and and anything that's sort of demonstrative and change takes physical and mental power so yeah so luckily Berlin's quite a nice place for downtime as well (laughs) (laughs) I've talked to a lot of producers recently of all kinds of art forms and I think one of the things that really reminds me of is is something that happens when you need to listen in to the work that you're involved in producing or publishing listening in really hard which is a really hard job to do whilst you're lobbying and advocating because they feel like two different modes in some ways. One is kind of broadcast mode and the other is kind of more quiet focus, really taking care of the detail. And I wondered in thinking about that listening in for a minute into your writers, whether you've observed something happening to writing, whether you've observed something to do with um, the voices that are emerging and what's happening um, to fiction in particular, and thinking about the kind of time ahead, is there anything that you can indicate that you're starting to notice is happening? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I spent a lot of time thinking about trends in publishing when I was a scout. And one of the things that, um, you know, my husband, who's a military historian and conflict journalist, one of the things that we did like 10 years ago was start to map where there'd been conflicts in the world and then I would kind of map onto that where the literature would that from that came from um so for example now um it was really interesting sort of three four years ago that you'd seen more literature about the Biafran war for example in Nigeria um and that it kind of takes and then what you started to see coming from like post cold war um and the fall of the berlin wall and um you know it it kind of takes 15 to 20 years for generations to tell the story um because it takes 15 to 20 years for us to kind of heal from whatever atrocity has happened to us um as human beings and so the stories can't come from the generation that are uh, um, experiencing it they can only come later but so the things that you're gonna see now um you know it's interesting to me that people are like are we gonna see covid stories or you know yeah. um i mean <laughs> certainly i wouldn't time. i mean certainly i wouldn't publish um anything on covid or brexit right now because like we're in the midst of it um and and it will only be and we haven't been able to speak to anyone or see anyone, you know. So it's like, what is there to what's there to say? Um, but we need to see how we need to see how it plays out on society to understand where we where we've gone. And so I would also hope that there's like the listening time from the 
from the authors. Um, um, but what people have been doing creatively, I think, is 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 thinking about a lot of other art forms. So I can see all the writers now are watching television more than they ever have done and watching things like Michaela Cole's um, I May Destroy You has been a massive game changer. And it's been really interesting to watch how people at first, at the beginning of lockdown, were like, normal people is the best thing I've ever watched on television. And then they were like, yeah. oh, okay, oh, this is so yeah. different, you know? And they shouldn't be, yeah. they shouldn't be compared, but they also, it, it was just really interesting, let's just say. Mm. It's really fascinating to, to have had an entire focus on race and blackness and the sort of abundance and excellence and brilliance of blackness um, um, versus um, the kind of British sort of Middle England kind of European way, which is kind of, which is great and fine and lovely. Um, but then, and and you just start seeing, and then you have this whole thing about race in the middle and then you get Michaela Cole and you're like, as we were saying, the impact mm. that we have is um, transformative. Mm. Like, it's not just like a really great experience to watch or kind of interesting. It's like, it's actually transformative. And when I think about the best writers ever, um, I do think about James Baldwin and Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison. Um, I do think about Colson Whitehead. Um, and it's because their storytelling is really, really transformative. And then obviously I think of, I think of Shakespeare, um, and then I think there's a lot of good writers, you know, and then I love John Berger, for example, um, but I think the earliest writers, um, the earliest philosophers were kind of really transformative in, in, in their vision and then we just haven't had that for a, a long time and so now we're what we're really seeing is like an explosion of of power coming from like a lot of marginalized groups whether that be trans um groups or people from the trans community or people from the black community from the asian community and people because people have been fighting for a very long time to tell their stories and to show their work um and i suppose the big question is for me, the big question is like whether or not the the, the gatekeepers are ready, and thus far mm. they've never been. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. Yeah, but also that the gatekeepers are changing, and fundamentally, what was I found fascinating um, about "I May Destroy You" is it's also about form and and the craft of screenwriting, as well as, of course, the story told. So what you what you see happening is that. It's not only the stories we're listening to are going to change, it's fundamentally the craft of making in whatever form that is, is going to change too. And I guess I, I, I think it's really fascinating that in broadcasting and in film and in TV, there's a certain sort of speed to that happening because of embracing digital technology. I, I think it's really interesting when we think about a culture reset that there is... Uh, sort of the hardware, if you like, of infrastructure that we have to shift and change in terms of venues, in terms of how the structures of how we do things and how in a way perhaps they're slower to respond because there's a certain kind of um, way in which those structures accommodate form 
in the way that, you know, you, you can be faster in TV and in film and potentially in literature as well. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it also kind of goes back to the idea of, like, who decided these forms anyway? You know, like, yeah. who yeah. who decided that who decided that we could only watch television in like a certain way or we could watch films, you know, there's um, directors like Peter Greenaway have been questioning how we watch cinema, um, how we sit in the cinema. Um, And now our governments are saying we can fly on planes, but we can't sit in an auditorium. Um, We can be in a crowded pub, but we can't, we can't um, go into the cinema. And so that low level distrust that comes from our from the population of really trying to understand like how we're going to engage in in theatre and cinema and art. You know, going to an art gallery again just feels like quite a long time away. Like having the time, um, having the time to actually go and see some art um, just feels like a really long way away um it just it it feels very busy although we're not going anywhere that's what I find really interesting um so I think there's going to be loads of questions around how we've enjoyed art and experiences and what we want and so I think rather than rather than just thinking about the practitioners whether they be authors or artists or um actors um rather than thinking about what's needed um, from their perspective um, and then the gatekeepers, I actually think this is a great opportunity to kind of open it out. You know, we've seen an engagement with readers in a different way by doing the Dialogue Book Lounge instead of having 50 people for drinks in Hampstead at Daunt's Books um, to celebrate Rainbow Milk, which is what was planned. We had 194 people um, turn up on on Instagram Live to do the talk and um, to see us talk, Paul and I, in conversation a, with each other. There's a gorgeous informality to Instagram Lives as well that I think you don't get at an event at all. I think that's going to fundamentally change, you know, how direct authors are. Um, I've been following Frank Cottrell Boyce's um, lessons for... 10 year olds um over as home as homeschooling and it's a, it's extraordinary their immediate um ability to send frank uh, messages and to receive back replies and it to be a live experience you know it's a very sort of off the cuff and i think that sense of how that can open up connection with writers is really exciting i think it's amazing i think and i think it's necessary and i think for too long it's been there's been an us and them between the, you know, I don't think the corporatization of the arts works personally. That's just like my thing. It's, it's, you know, I don't think that the creatives, the true creatives are given enough credit or money or space or time to create. So how would you change that? How would you change the way in which society values writers, for example? So, for example, let's take one of my books, The Vanishing Half. That's now a Sunday Times bestseller, um, reached number <laughs> Congratulations. one. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it reached number one in the New York Times in its first week and the first um, black woman since late 1971 to do that. Okay. Now, 
I've now seen hundreds of people read this book and tweet about it and post about it. And what I'm really listening to is what they're saying about the narrative. And although it's been published um, during um, the moment within a great movement of Black Lives Matter, which has been going on for a very long time, um, what's really interesting about the um, book is, and it also has a trans story running through it, but that's not what people are connecting to. Because um, obviously those things are coincidence that those do to trans lives and black lives are something that's really prominent right now and that we're fighting for um, and against the oppression of. So, but what's really interesting is that all these people are just reading it and loving it within sort of 24 hours because it's just a really, 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 really good story. It's very well written. It's beautifully written. It's really tender, but it also opens you up into worlds that you wouldn't imagine. So you've got these two twins um, who are who passes white, growing up in 1950s Southern America, and they um, leave home at the age of 16 and form different paths. One lives as white and the other lives as black. So what's really interesting is that no one has this experience of the world. Like very, very few people have this experience of the world, but yet everyone's holding on to it. Um, the fact that Brit was paid quite a lot of money for her first book means that she probably has a bit more space to write her, to write this. Um, but because of her experience in the world um, as a black woman and the family history and heritage that she has, um, then she's able to tap into things that are sort of really interesting. But she has a lot of space and time to be able to do that. Um, and having been told by many people that um, writers have been told that you know, people don't want to read diverse books or they're not that interested. The irony is that whenever there is something that's from a writer from um, a Black background or Black heritage, then they, people lap it up. And, you know, what we've always said, the writing has to be excellent. Like, I'm not interested in anything other than excellent, excellent writing. Um, but when it's there... It's so powerful and no one can hold on to any, like many of the themes of the, of the book in its entirety because it's just an entirely made up story. Um, it's not a lived experience for anyone, but yet people are coming to it. And that's where it's fascinating. And that's mm. where art is like at its mm. sort of richest. Um, so I, I think it's... That. Well, I just think yeah. that's the thing that I've been listening to because I'm being mm. told, like, people don't want this. And I'm like, what don't they want? What is it? What exactly is it that you're saying that they don't want? And the thing that you realise is that it's, the again, it's like the gatekeepers. And so it's almost like you just have to give people more space and you have to accept the fact that you might not know the public in which you think are buying these books. You know, there isn't a Air Force where you like tap out about how the quality of your experience when you've been through um, <laughs> to pick up your luggage and stuff to get through security. You don't have that at Waterstone. So you can't just be like, I'm black. Like I bought four books and I'm black and I bought, I didn't buy any books. I just browse and I'm white. Like, you know, I'm not sure how they've come up with this metric. And even, and even mm. with theatres, you know. It's so interesting that question of that word gatekeepers. I'm really interested in um, the producer's role. Um, there's a big debate, you know, at the moment over whether or not you effectively give the writers the keys and the artists the keys do we need gatekeepers and producers at all? My experience and is really sort of understanding a spectrum of approach 
where all of those options would be possible. But I know that um, being a producer enables you to encourage and support and spot things maybe an artist hasn't seen and to find the right audience and to find the right moment and time where those things come together. I'm interested in how you think about relevance going forward and how you make that argument for what stories feel is it very intuitive for you figuring out what's the right time for a book and the right place for a book yeah I think so I mean I I'm really shocked by how few people in um publishing how few editors in publishing have ever worked in a bookshop um you know I had zero training coming in to become a publisher and normally you'd have sort of 20 years of I said being at your desk and working out what a TI is and all of these things um and biblio but um what is a TI a title information sheet that tells you everything oh, thank you very and much. biblio is our internal operating system <laughs> which I don't really use now I know now you know <laughs> now we all know but do we know how to use it is the question no um and I still don't and that's fine I'm fine with that but what I do really know is that since I was since I was eight I was buying my own books and since I was 16 I've been selling books in bookshops so I've sold countless books to people who have a different life experience to me. And so I've got to understand what different types of people are interested in. Um, and now as a publisher, it's, you know, when you've done that for sort of more or less 20 years, you know, then it's it's a really long time. Um, I, I became a publisher at 35, 36, and throughout that whole time I'd either worked in or run my own bookshops so you know it's it's like I know readers really really well it's like what I know sort of the most intimately and that's the thing that I focus on and so there's some books that really really hit me and other books that I just think this will be really great and I can imagine I can see a gap and I can see that people should read this and I would like people to read this um and I think it's always outside of myself and my own experience and I think one of the problems with a lot of gatekeepers is that they centre themselves way too much and this Mm. idea of like Mm. I loved it like it was incredible and I thought and I I I I and I'm like listen you know you're actually here to serve a purpose for like a public um, and your taste is like not the most important thing. It's understanding how to connect with with readers, um, audiences, and other people who were prepared to pay. Um, that's the most important thing that you can that you can bring, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's what you're actually paid to do. And I think that there's just been a bit of a misunderstanding around that, um, and people feeling as though. They've suddenly, they've finally got to this place that they've reached um, in the ivory tower and that they preside over all of this creativity and it's about what hits them. And it's Mm -hmm. like, but, you know, there's only one of you and there's hundreds of thousands of other people and you can't speak for them. And so all you can do um, is think about society what different types of people need and then try and as a publisher then trying to 
ensure that the your marketing person, your pub, your publicist, um, you know, your sales teams, that they have everything that they need to try and help you and your offer reach as many readers as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, that's actually the job. Um, mm-hmm. And so what I don't do is I don't centre sort of myself in it. I just think... Yeah. It's such a beautiful articulation of what that, the sort of, midwife job is <laughs> you know of, un, of, un, of helping something through helping something to see the light of day it's that's such a beautiful articulation of it and just finally as we're sort of casting into the future I'm conscious of this extraordinary role you have in the Black Writers Guild and everything you're hoping that will achieve I'm wondering kind of what you might cast into the future and imagine would change as most fundamentally um, in terms of the literature and publishing world? I think that with a big recession coming, um, I think there's just going to be a really big shift in um, where people are. So at Hachette, for example, we are going to be moving to um, Bristol, Sheffield, Leeds, Newcastle, Manchester, Um, and Edinburgh, and we're opening offices there. Um, And I think that with a new generation of people coming through, and not necessarily a young generation, I hope, I hope that will be people of all ages, um, all different abilities, neurotypical people, people from um, all sorts of backgrounds, um, then then I think it's going to add something really really rich into um, what's been quite homogenous. And um, I don't really like being a bit of a fortune teller. Um, I just have lots of hopes. And I just hope that more people will join um, the company in different roles. And, and that will, in turn, get people really thinking. And I think once people start thinking and that they're outside of their own experiences a bit more, because they're forced to, um, then then it just opens the door to lots and lots of different types of people and their stories. Um, and what we've seen during the pandemic is that the appetite for reading is just as strong as ever, if not stronger. It's been absolutely phenomenal. Um, and so... I'm really, I'm really hopeful. I feel like I'm, of all of the creative arts, um, I feel like we are the luckiest, actually. Um, I think publishing is the luckiest. I hope that other art forms can also kind of find that, that shift um, out, of, out of the capital, out of sort of expense. You know, let's not be paying for big buildings and let's be paying people. Um, when people can eat then people can perform you know Um, they can create that surplus that I was talking about earlier is really really fundamental let's create a surplus for many people all over the country um, in order in order for a really fruitful and vibrant and fervent art scene um, across all creative industries to thrive. Charmaine thank you so much it's been so brilliant to listen to you could listen to you all day and uh, yeah, thank you. You are a true trailblazer and a force for good. Thanks so much. Thanks, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Postcards to the Future. 
If you subscribe, then miraculously new episodes of this podcast will drop into your podcast platform of choice. Postcards for the Future is a People Make It Work project devised and produced by David Micklem and Claire Doherty for the Culture Reset Programme, which is funded by the ever-brilliant Gulbenkian Foundation. <laughs>